It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman Podcast. I was quite. I felt that was extra chirpy this week. Um, I've decided, Stephen, that as it's half term, what we should do this week, also because I, if I have to talk about Europe again, I, I, I will die. Um, that we should give half term awards as a way of probably getting to be quite mean about a lot of politicians in a very short space of time. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. So let's let's give out some grades. David Cameron. I've got to give him a C. Um, so you know he hasn't. You know, he's, he's done enough. Yeah, I'm not saying we should keep, he's, he's coming back next term, uh, regrettably, uh, for, a, for more fun. Uh, but obviously the European renegotiation is a, a horror show from start to finish. Is uh, it though? Because ev- I know he's not getting anything and everybody's grumpy about it, but does it m- matter? Is any, I just, the... I mean, I think it, it sort of depends. So, I mean, I, perhaps I'm putting him in a no win situation here, but so there are two scenarios with the emergency break which is obviously this idea for, for listeners just joining us, and then you will take away benefits for four years, well, you'll taper benefits for four years, and this will stop migrants coming to the United Kingdom from the Euro area. Of course, the reason why people come from the European Union to Britain is because of the British jobs market is in better health than the And also because our jobs here are, are still better paid, I, even if you would know in work benefits, than yeah. they would be in, in Eastern yeah, European countries. Yeah, the FD had a really good stat, and if you are working in a McDonald's in Poland... Uh, you can can't afford one Big Mac with an hour's wages, uh, whereas if you are working at a McDonald's in London, you can afford two point six. Um, you shouldn't so, do that for an eight-hour shift, though. That would be bad. No, but you know, so that that is a uh, yeah. So the idea that the benefits cut, you know, it, it's 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 cruel, but it doesn't deter. Yeah, and people same from, with child benefits. Yeah. The vast majority of migrants come over for a couple of years, and they are disproportionately young and single and child-free. Yeah. So my fear is that so the one there are two things at the time of recording. There's still a decent chance that he won't get anything because he spent a year wooing Angela Merkel. Um, you know, I you know, whereas the the you know your Poland, uh, the Czech Republic, these nations, their their leaders and diplomats basically feel that Cameron has spent three years talking about them, not to them. So there's still a chance he ends up with nothing, even if he gets what he wants. Um, if he if we go into the referendum and the in and and in is having to say, look, this will stop migration. Well, every academic, every economist. And for the first time, every tabloid newspaper will will stop saying, "Oh, benefits 
draw migrants. Although this isn't going to do a thing to stop migration, so it's a, a very risky place to put it on. But you know, I'm giving him a C because uh, I think that's a little, yeah. I think I'll give him a slightly better one because I feel like, well, I don't know. He's just I think he's just quite. It's just it's all been sacrificed about managing party discipline, hasn't it? And I guess you, it's whether or not you think actually if you would if he'd been slightly bolder and gone, will you all just shut up? But I think what this has done is is called the bluff of a lot of allegedly Eurosceptic Tory MPs, particularly the senior Tories, who have you know mouthed off about evil Europe and are now going to have to slightly recalibrate the language. Talking of which, Theresa May. Oh, Theresa May, you've got to give her a a D actually, because one. It's been a fairly terrible, so I'm going to also cheat and give my grade to George Osborne at the same time. Yeah. You've got to give Osborne an F grade. An F grade. Failed every target he's set himself. The unravelling of his reputation as a master strategist. You know, he's kind of gone from Blofeld to Dr. Evil in uh, in the course of Yes, a few tax years. credits hit him pretty hard, yeah. as did I, yeah, as, yeah as did his chances of the next Tory leader. I just feel like there's been a sort of move among MPs where they're just a bit sort of sullen about the prospect now. Yeah, there's this feeling, whenever I talk to someone else, so one said, oh, we know the Chancellor has a bye to the the final. And there's this assumption of, oh, well, we know that he will be in the top two. But there's but that's what you increasingly get. small enthusiasm for him, a lot of uncertainty. That should really have been the moment for Theresa May, the most senior woman in the government. She really ought to be moving into pole position. But... But what I keep hearing is that, you know, there are no Mayites. There's no sort of parliamentary base for her. And because of the way that the Tory contest works, you know, with MPs having to put forward two candidates to the wider membership, you really have to be wooing those MPs' heart. Which brings us to Boris Johnson. So there's been a whole lot of chat about how uh, there was a newspaper report saying, you know, George Osborne has been having people over for lovely Chardonnay in his staterooms. Boris Johnson has been getting MPs in for a, you know, takeaway curry eaten out of tinfoil. I am going to give Boris Johnson a U. Yeah. How do you like them apples? Well, I'm just tired of it, Stephen. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm fed up. I, you know, all this stuff about it, whether or which way he's going to go is become, frankly, pretty tedious and become a kind of, why is this turned into the Boris Johnson show? And also, I'm just feeling like he's not been a great London mayor and also he's still London mayor. Why isn't he doing a bit more bloody mayoring? The Garden Bridge is sucking up all this huge amount of taxpayers' money at the same time that other, you know, uh, in Jack Redpiece in the Garden, about the fact that five northern museums are being shut down, whereas we're getting some pot plants on a steel strut that will be closed overnight and closed for corporate parties. I just don't see the point. And London has got some really serious problems. Like Housing is only the most obvious of them. And, you know, transport is a, is another obvious one. The, the mayor has got seriously big powers, but he's totally checked out like he's done that. That's that that was the boost he needed to build himself a base somewhere else. He's now parlayed that back into Parliament. But so he's sort of, you know, YOLO. I put it to you that I prefer a switched off Boris Johnson, because last time Boris switched on to the problems of London, he, he, he commissioned a bus which is, is, is bespoke, is dangerous on hot days. We're never going to be able to sell it to anyone, and it has a capacity of about eight, and is really bad for disabled passengers. Boris not caring about London, I think, has been great for considering the options, which is a Boris Johnson who cares about London and builds a new route master, and a Boris Johnson who doesn't care about London, and also the cable car. I mean, the cable, the car. cable car. I actually used to be one of the five passengers of the cable car. When I used to live in Surrey Keys and work on weekends in Kensington. I would sometimes, the circle line would be closed and I would get the boat. The boat was great. The boat was obviously only got you as far as embankment. They had Smirnoff ice on the boat. Wow. Yeah. 
It's pretty exciting coming home on the coming home on the boat after a shift. Yeah. Yeah. Something there was like there was no alcohol on the uh, on, on the, the cable bottom, car. On the cable you could car. bring your own. Oh, I know because you can't have open alcohol now, can you? Yeah. Presumably, the Smirnoff ice has also been turned off on the boat now that it's uh, more integrated into TfL. Listeners, if you do know about the availability of Smirnoff ice on London's public transport, I am interested. Uh, oh, other grades. Uh, I think I think for me, the dunce of the year has got to be Chris Grayling. Oh, yes. Can we have a go? Well, Ian Duncan Smith. Hmm. Oh, it's, I mean, Ian Duncan Smith, it almost feels... He hasn't got appreciably worse. I, I guess think that's the, the point, is isn't like, he? Kind of, I, he's managed to achieve this zen level of incompetence where I just kind of take... People are like, Ian Duncan Smith is awful. It's like, oh yeah, Ian Duncan Smith is awful, but... It's there was like, a tweet today from the guy who's um, heading up Universal Credit being like, Universal Credit's still going great. We've got 170,000 people on it. And you're like, well, that is in some ways good. It's not the 4 million you were promising by now, is it, though? But uh, yeah, no, Chris Grading is related to my grade for Michael Gove. And I... This is going to upset, and I'm pleased teachers send hate mail to the New Statesman office. I'm going to give Michael Gove an A-. Yeah, I think he's been a, a brilliant Shadow Justice Secretary. Um, he's. Uh, I was talking to uh, someone from the Shadow Justice team and they said, oh, the real difficulty with Michael Gove is just really hard for us not to look churlish because you just sit there going, we're really glad you've done this thing that we told you to do last year and there's really nothing else you can say other than go... No, but he's so he scrapped the court's charge, which was this unfair kind of penalty that... It really was an incentive for poor people to plead guilty, you know, um, because it was levied on top of any fines and any legal fees. He's cancelled that 5.9 million contract with the Saudis to provide whatever the sinister metaphor was about support and access training. And uh, and he's, he's wholeheartedly scrapped Chris Grayling's legal aid reforms because there were 90 legal challenges. I mean, the one thing that lawyers are notoriously really good at is mounting legal challenges to yeah. things they don't like. And um, prison. And he, it, well, that's why I give him the minus, okay? Because the big problem in prisons, because I interviewed for the Week of Estimates of Francis Crook of, Crook of the Howard League, is just overcrowded. There are 85,000 people in prisons. It's double what there were when Margaret Thatcher left office. There is one suicide in prison every four days. And a lot of those problems are down to overcrowding. So Michael Gove's got a plan, which is that he's going to sell off and demolish the old Victorian city centre prisons, move them out to the countryside. In one sense, great, have more space. In another sense, that's I worry about the fact that, particularly for the women's prison in Holloway, it's good for people to be integrated into the community. It's good for their families to be able to come and visit them. And one of the things that's really unpleasant about Yarls Wood, the detention centre, is the fact that it's a miles down the end of an, pretty much an unlit lane. Um, I, 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 but, you know, if that's the way to fund better prison by selling off you know, prime slices of London real estate, and that's the only way you're going to get that money in an, you know, in an austerity government... It maybe it's a pragmatic solution. And also, I, he is now saying he's yeah the the only other than Ken Clark who didn't really count because by that point he'd basically checked out of the government. The first person to go, well, you know, prison doesn't work. Um, yeah, and actually, it's 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 mainly a university of crime. So yeah, I'm going to give him an A. So oh, this is it. Every teacher is is we are we're dead to them. Who else? Who have we else have we forgotten? Uh, well, Nicky Morgan, of course. Don't mind Nicky Morgan. Doesn't hasn't really done a lot of late that I've uh, I've heard about. I was tempted to give her a B for boring, as it were. Jeremy Hunt gets a bad grade. Um, I mean, if you're a Tory health minister, you have a really difficult position anyway because people just do not implicitly do not trust the Conservatives on the NHS. The BMA are the union that no one really knows is a trade union. People really like doctors. They really trust them because doctors are magic people who tell you what the rash is and make sure that you don't die of it. 
you know, you, you use the NHS when, you know, your baby stops breathing. That makes Obviously, that inculcates far greater gratitude than, you know, the concept of some health secretary sitting somewhere. Nonetheless, I just think he's sort of... He's sort of turning into Ed the Duck in my mind. I just don't know. His hair's got sort of kind of fluffier. And I just... I just I don't know. I just need to... He also is giving off a hapless air. Yes, which that's, I think what, that's is the Ed the Duck thing. I just think yeah. he just doesn't seem authoritative. He just seems somebody who's slightly panicked. As as indeed he might be. Yeah, as I, I would be too if I managed to upset quite that many uh, uh, medical professionals. But yeah, and so obviously he's kind of... He's failed from a political perspective and his job was kind of to avoid fires going off in the DOH. He's failed from a policy perspective in that there is the real chance he is the recruiting ser- going to be the recruiting sergeant for Australian and New Zealand uh, medicalness. And, um, medicalness. I can't really think of a third way he's failed, but I like lists of three, so I'm kind of stuffed. Yeah, well, he didn't go out and defend the policy very much, did he? I mean, I know John Snow moaned that he hadn't been on Channel 4 News since May 2013, and then he sort of tipped up that weekend. But it's a, it is a, it is, that's always a difficult calibration for a cabinet minister to make. You know, how much do you go out there and really get associated with your really unpopular policies? But versus, you know, if you don't bother to defend them, you just let someone else dictate all the, all the coverage about them. Have we forgotten any? Oh, Michael Fallon. Michael Fallon, I briefly warmed to after we were both on the Mar programme and I had quite an interesting discussion with him, which he impressed me as being more serious than I'd hitherto said. But I just saw a Guardian headline on the front page just before we came up here saying, Michael Fallon, Jeremy Corbyn is more dangerous to the Falklands than Argentina. I mean, and I thought, do you know what? Jeremy Corbyn has notoriously got a warship. That is true. Do you know who we've forgotten? And I think this sort of speaks to the grade that he's going to get. Philip Hammond. I mean, surely he's like a did not compete, really. I mean, it's just be like... <laughs> well, it's, I guess the problem has been that the big subject is Europe. Mm-hmm. And he's just not on the pitch because Cameron wants to handle the renegotiation himself, you know. So everything that is now Europe adjacent, things like, you know, migration, for example, you know, uh, even things like sort of NATO and UN stuff about refugee uh, movements is all has all been sort of sucked... I mean, Cameron has sort of gone a bit presidential, hasn't he, this term? Well, all prime ministers become their own foreign secretaries eventually. I can't remember who said that, but I'm sure they were someone very wise. Um, or maybe I said it, who knows? Um, but that's kind of the problem for me, exactly as you say. He gets absorbed into the only thing. What is Hammondism? The interesting thing is he is the person being talked up as the person who is likely to have to give up his job when they have to find a big job for Boris. Yeah, but again, I just think I really like the suggestion that they would give um, they would give Boris work and pensions as a sort of punishment brief because you could be like, oh, this is a really you know this is a really big spending department, Boris. You know, it really needs somebody. But what it needs more than anything else is someone with their eye on the ball, like, and that would be the kind of you know I think that's you know if you think about the sort of from if you're George Osborne and you spent all this time. At, as chancellor you think i want the other guy who's who's up against me to have really been in the deep end of just really fine-grained minutiae really boring things on microsoft excel spreadsheets punish him with the dwp the thing is is there's a risk in doing that he just says no and is boris more of a threat to george osborne or david cameron if he's on the back benches he can vote against tax credit cuts he can vote against short money cuts he can vote against whatever ill-conceived wheeze then Osborne comes up next uh, next month in the budget. I think he's far more dangerous, whereas if he's... Uh, so I think they have to give him something big. And the attraction of the Foreign Office is he's away for long periods. He's <laughs> like, bye. Yeah. Enjoy the air miles. Um, there's bound to be someone that we've forgotten, isn't there? 
but um, perhaps you know people can tweet in with their own grades. Yeah, for, actually, for yeah. People PPSs can... that they really, really yeah. hate. That would be that would be quite a fun activity next week. Tell us who you know who who you think you're. Your, you know, who, who's the Tory minister who's done well? It can even be, you know, if, if a C is doing well, that's fine. And who, who are the people who you're ex- expelling? IDS doesn't count because he shouldn't still be there. Yeah, okay. Um, We've made that a rule. That's a hard rule. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the Pop Culture Podcast from the New Statesman. Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And now it's time to go down to the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. So, Parliament's been... In recess this week, so it's inevitably been quieter than usual. But those Labour MPs who have been around have been uh, rather morose um, in light of the recent polling we've had. Uh, Labour behind by an average of about 10 at the moment. Uh, there was a Comrades poll at the weekend which put them 14 points behind, which I think was the worst at any point since 2010. And of course, a lot of people saying response, well, why do we still pay attention to polls? After all, they would got the general election wrong but two points on that of course they were wrong but not in Labour's favour they were sampling too few conservative voters and in fact there's some polling companies who still fear that they're underestimating the Tory vote and then in one sense the polls were right they consistently showed that the Tories had a lead on best prime minister and on economic management a position from which no party had ever lost a general election. And so the clues are all there. And um, like a, a magic eye picture, the eventual outcome, a Tory majority, was, was, was merely hidden. So there's not much comfort that, that Labour can, can draw from, from the polls at the moment. You can't um, spin them. Um, and in fact, some say, well, Jeremy Corbyn's team are, aren't, aren't really trying to do because um, what the left ultimately care about is not winning power in the country but uh, winning power in the party but so is there a yeah what if, if you were to ask a, a member of the leader's office well what's your plan for 2020 what would they say i think what they'd say is we're going to continue to campaign uh against austerity and they do recognize john mcdonald made a speech at LSE this week and was quite frank in the Q&A that followed and said divided parties don't win elections, we need to handle the media better, we need to learn lessons. Um, In response to a a frustrated questioner, he said, yes, we do need to do more to oppose austerity, we do need to be more prominent. And they would say we've been firefighting for for the last few months. Um, Of course, some critics would say a lot of those fires were self-ignited. But they feel as if they're operating in a relentlessly hostile environment uh, with reference both to Labour MPs and the media, but feel they've now got some breathing space, partly thanks to the focus on the EU referendum and the Conservative split there. And obviously that's one issue on which Labour, compared to others, is remarkably united, although there are tensions, of course. And now they've got that breathing space, the onus is on them to come out with... um, uh, policy proposals to uh, be much less reactive to try and define the the mood rather than respond to it and they recognize that and that's both an opportunity and, and a risk i mean the danger is that if the heat does go off 
Jeremy Corbyn for, for a significant period and yet Labour doesn't make any progress, then it will be a lot harder to blame MPs, to blame the media if the local elections go as badly as predicted. And is there a chance, and if the local elections did go as badly as predicted and he'd had this fair wind, are MPs uh, still talking to you about a 2016 uh, attempt to get rid of him? Uh, few think that there'll be a challenge um, in, in the wake of May. Uh, the, they said it's not impossible, particularly if, worst case scenario, Sadiq Khan loses the mayoral election and Labour is pushed into third place in Scotland by by the Conservatives. But most think Jeremy Corbyn will only be in the eighth month of his leadership then. Um, he will be able to, to plead more time and in, in some respects it will be uh, wrong after he won such a, a huge victory not to not to give him more time. Uh, the EU referendum is likely to be held on June the 23rd, so you'll instantly move from, from one campaign in, into another. Um, when discussing uh, the potential of a challenge, most MPs think 2017 is, is more likely, perhaps after you've had another set of, of they fear, bad election results. And they say that the role of the trade unions in this is, is, is particularly crucial. Uh, Len McCluskey has said that Jeremy Corbyn has two to three years to make an impact, which um, was code really for saying if, if, if things aren't going well by that point, uh, then Labour will need a, a new leader. But he himself has a, a battle to fight for, for re-election and needs to keep the left of Unite happy. And so he does balance that out by saying people should get behind Jeremy Corbyn and it's disgraceful how some Labour MPs have treated him. But MPs believe that he and other union leaders will... Um, will act um if um if if though if labor is clearly going to fail and is on course to lose the election because ultimately it's in their members interest to have a labor government they want a labor government and that mp's feel sets them aside um from those uh on on the on the left of the party who, who they feel are ultimately focused on, on on changing labor on party reform rather than on winning power to change the country wow wonderful and um, we'll be back next Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Next week. Well, let's talk about awards. We're joined by Barbara Speed, who writes about Techverse. And uh, there's two things that have come up recently. The first, I guess, is the background. We have the Oscars next week, I think, and like end of next week, uh, which has been bedeviled by accusations. There's no uh, non-white person nominated in either Best Actor, Actress, Supporting Actor or Actress. Um, Jada Pinkett Smith has talked about boycotting them. And then in our own little tiny, <laughs> very much the Oscars of the news industry, um, the British Press Awards uh, shortlist came out at the beginning of this week, and it was astonishing in its in its lack of diversity. I, although, yes, although, although, I don't like to mention one, it. Um, <laughs> although one cheeky little cub reporter managed to sneak through uh, one S. Bush Esquire. So congratulations, Stephen. 
Let us demonstrate uh, our gratitude for your nomination in uh, Young Journalist of the Year. Young Journalist of the Year. I'd by, like to thank uh, my mom and my uh, my magazine. Um, by sort of pissing all over the entire concept of the press awards for five to six minutes. No, we won't do that. But I think we. I think this is a good opportunity to to talk about. Um, okay, Barbara. First of all. Let's talk about the, the gender ratio of it. I was really surprised, like, having previously judged these awards, and actually there's been a long discussion about whether or not um, it's about you know, who gets put forward by the newspapers or who gets through. But there were some categories like feature writers for broadsheets where I could just think of so many women that it sort of seemed... It's, it, it's really hard with yeah. awards to, to say, well, this person shouldn't have got on and this person should have got on. But that is a category that I can think of so many women they could have picked. Yeah, and I think the complicating factor with um, the press awards in particular is the no- that you're kind of nominate, self-nominated by your publication or possibly by yourself. Um, and so I think that a lot of people did raise the fact that kind of who is pushed forward within their organization might be a huge problem because I think that we all know that most newsrooms are now if not exactly equal then there are a lot of women around so I mean I think that the final figure there was like 17% women on that shortlist which is far lower than the number of women in the industry well I but this is something that I say every time some young eager beaver student comes to interview me about women in the media which happens a distressing amount which is I think at graduate level like whenever we advertise for a job Actually, if anything, sometimes we advertise for a job and we have a majority of female applicants. And, you know, the NS web desk is lady-tastic, right? Mm-hmm. Poor, poor John Elliott. Very sheltered. <laughs> I think feels sometimes, you know, the, the, like the real minority. Um, but at, at higher levels, it's just not it's just not the same in a lot of places. You know, I, I went to... That is true. But I think that the issue that you raised that kind of almost categories you would expect women to do well in, they were just completely absent. So, And there was that kind of awful division of popular versus broadsheet and the popular category was always filled with women and the broadsheet was not and I mean if we talk about Stephen's category which is young journalists of the year and that can be people who've been working for a few years but again only one woman in that category so it, it, it does seem odd that in the awards at least the problem is stretched kind of throughout i'm sure there'll be people who say well hang on a minute like are you all just sitting here moaning because you don't get nominated for any awards well i'm not um, <laughs> in steven's case that's definitely not true i would like to declare that i once got awarded a journalism award which was um the games writers association gave me non-games writing publications games writer of the year and i think they basically that was because keith stewart of the guardian had had it like five years on the trot and they had to desperately <laughs> cast around for someone else a token uh, other person so yeah but <laughs> but there we go i think the thing is, is like so. I think it's a problem one because obviously, I'm not one of those people who subscribes to the idea that the media controls how people think. But the media is responsible for packaging and deciding what is newsworthy, and winning prizes and gaining prestige is obviously a part of what keeps people in an industry. So I think it's damaging for society overall. Uh, also, I mean, I'm not going to pretend that if I was offered the, uh, if I if I win the prize, I'm going to like cast it back into the ocean. But when you win an award, you want to feel like you're competing with the best of your profession. If Marina Hyde is not a political journalist, a contender for political journalist of the year, then it's not really an award for the top of the profession. And whether it's the judges or the magazines, uh, obviously the NS put me forward and uh, also. I don't think there was a single sort of white bloke who was put forward in the end. They but... put uh, put forward you and, and Kate Mossman in the Critic yeah. of the Year, and she didn't get through, which I again I think is astonishing because her interview with Terence Trent Darby was the most read thing on our website last year by an absolute street. It went totally around yeah, the world. Nearly three million piece. people read it. And she's done some incredible other interviews uh, apart from that. She specialises in elderly gentlemen of rock. But... Um, <coughs> 
But yeah, but I think the reason that I would, I would make the case for having, having this discussion is exactly on that point you make, Stephen, which is that this is about kind of what is deemed to be serious and important. And actually, I looked, and it was really interesting looking at the... Uh, you know the kind of categories that you get nominated for in columns, the other kind of subjects you can't write. And I would choose there were two people who both written a column that was essentially we mustn't get emotional about these pictures of Ellen Curdy. We must have a you know another not an emotional response to the refugee crisis. And I thought that that is kind of that to me is the sort of apogee of of of, of serious. You, know, you get serious men in the say, and it's just harder to be a serious woman of of news. And that's kind of something that comes up again and again in um, literature about this idea about canon formation. So I'm going to be soon recording a, a new thing that we're doing, a history podcast about uh, 18th century female writers. And there were just tons of them. And yet we've ended up with this warped you, view of... Wait, the... are you cheating on me? <laughs> I am. I'm cheating on you with two academics. You're seeing another podcast. Two, two lady academics. Uh, um, but, but, and then it got warped down into Daniel Defoe, you know, Samuel Richardson, Henry Fielding, as being the kind of exemplar of the, the rise of the novel. And that's why I think it's... What, the other thing I think is really annoying, <laughs> so this has turned into like Helen's small rant time, but uh, is the lack of interest in the men, in the powerful men. And uh, it's something that my sister, who works in business, said to me, is really, uh, it sticks with me, which she says, the trouble so much with these diversity initiatives is it can become, okay, women, go away and solve diversity. Like, why, you know, why aren't there more of you? And actually, no one ever asks the, the blokes. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, we had this discussion in the office yesterday about, you know, whether or not she should boycott award ceremonies when you feel that they're unfair. And I think with the Oscars, I think it's really unfair for it to be making black people boycott the Oscars. Actually, the only real change will come when, you know, Brad Pitt or someone you know, someone of equal kind of stature, like mm. from someone who's absolutely cast iron part of the establishment were to do that. Yeah. Well, also that the message sent by these award nomination shortlists is basically, we don't want you there anyway. So to, for your response to be fine and I won't go is probably counterproductive. You need the people who are apparently wanted and lauded to say, no, this is not. Yeah, I'm not going to compete yeah. on unfair terms. I also think that probably we should have a moment to acknowledge the real talk about award ceremonies. Ben Goldacre wrote a column about this, but it's something that never really gets brought up, which is that award ceremonies, by and large, do not exist to reward excellence. They exist to generate revenue for the people running the award ceremonies. So mm. most award ceremonies, and, and this happens across all industry awards, you know, journalism is not unique in this, are, you know, you pay to enter, then people are asked usually to judge for free, then people pay for a table at the award ceremony. And then that, I mean, which creates an interesting system where, you know, people feel, well, hang on a minute, why have we paid for a table three years in a trot and not won anything? And I think it's also, it's something that really discriminates against against smaller, like in the, in the case of the New Statesman, you know, there's the Sun will probably have three tables at this award ceremony and we would never be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So realistically, you know, there is a kind of political incentive you know, yeah. I, whether or not, I'm sure that's not, I'm not accusing them of, of doing that deliberately, but I can see that people would feel subconsciously, well, surely the sun deserved to walk away with at least one thing. And equally, I mean, there's another issue is, is that journalism can be a very good profession for women in that there's more opportunities for part-time or freelance work. But again, if you were a freelancer, the likelihood of you stumping up, what is it, £150 to enter yourself for those awards, I think, yeah, yeah. awards is kind of non-existent. So actually a huge swathe of brilliant female journalism is kind of cut away there I mean some publications might pay for a freelancer but if you're you've got your kind of big noisy men in the office and then you've got the women who send in really good stuff I mean but it's also about the difference between popularity and prestige isn't it because I think you know BuzzFeed who by any reckoning are an incredibly successful news organization you know if you're a 21 year old coming out of a journalism course 
they're as likely to employ you as any newspaper. Probably, I would say, in the last couple of years, considerably more likely. You know, mm. they they have uh, have really expanded the range of jobs open to people, but they're not really kind of they're not. You know, I think they're not just sort of not seen as sort of blue chip yet. Yeah, well, there's this weird thing that you'll see this when. Um... So whenever I go for like a first meeting with an MP I haven't met before and you do that kind of like weird first date thing and the question I'll often get is, oh well who do you see as your sort of rivals? And I'll say something like, oh, Emily Ashton or Jim Watson at BuzzFeed are very good. And they'll oh, BuzzFeed? The BuzzFeed. The BuzzFeed is the BuzzFeed a thing. And, there's, <laughs> and when they do something good, you'll see these people will go like, BuzzFeed's done something which is actually quite good. The word actually appears a lot in tweets about mm. BuzzFeed's stuff. I find that very irritating because I think it's actually bad for BuzzFeed as well because it sort of encourages them in this belief that that they should get special claps for doing journalism because it's kind of like and I and 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 it happens in all kinds of you know it happens in video games where you get stuck at people writing the piece about no video games can be art it happens with you know tattoos we've been stuck at like tattoos not just for sailors mm-hmm. um and, and people get stuck at these things and then now we're definitely if stuck. I win an award I'm getting a tattoo but okay, of, of of your get a tattoo of your face on your back like Steve-O from Jackass. Well, the one person I'm not going to go off really is myself. Yeah, I mean, like it's, it's much more safe than getting your kids or your wife if you're listening to this. I love you, um, like or anyone like that. Yeah, you could get a tattoo of your Instagram feed on on your back. But that would be a lot of photos of you. (laughs) But unfortunately, anyway, the point I was making was that people kind of do, and now people are stuck at the like, wow, BuzzFeed, not just cat gifts stage, and that's kind of it's kind of it doesn't it's not really good for them or anyone else. This is strayed very far from the original point. But But I mean, it is of interest that they, I think, they were nominated for one thing at the Press Awards, which does to be to me just show the Press Awards are fairly stuck in the mud. Really, like maybe we shouldn't be looking there for signs of innovation and forward thinking in the, in the industry but it's still annoying that of the lists that exist that show which things we think are great that's kind of one of the only ones yeah and i think it does reveal as well that the, the with journalism you know we have this conversation all the time and it's something that people bring up all the time with me on people on twitter about you know journalism stuck in the bubble it's all just oxbridge graduates it's all people that are just based in london blah, you know x y z about the about diversity stuff and that that what I've kind of come to think is that the problem is there are problems throughout the pipeline. And I don't know whether or not you agree with this. For women, I think the really big thing is how do you combine it with, with being a you know the primary parent? And we know that women still take that role on far, far more. You know, how, how do you get flexible working on a newspaper? You know, the lobby is particularly really tough for this because you have to be able to go and you know go to China with David Cameron or, you know, do on the TV stuff, do a live broadcast. And I know, you know, the broadcasters have tried to work on that, but it's still just technically a really quite a tough thing to crack on race i think the problem starts even earlier i i i mean there were what four we think four non-white four, 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 four or five depending on because obviously it's that thing where you know like if you, depending on the picture you submit uh i obviously have a, a fairly white sounding name as it were um, oh yeah I, I think the thing is is depressingly when i I, know, I didn't go to journalism school myself but i will occasionally do sort of a talk at one and four people getting to be shortlisted for a journal award is, is quite depressingly quite an impressive haul based on the people who are actually going through through journalism courses whereas 20 women out of 119 based on those rooms is yeah that's is, my is, feeling is that the problem yeah. on race starts starts earlier it starts with who's actually in the news yeah rooms. it comes back to unpaid internships uh, yeah which like you know i mean i couldn't have afforded to do an unpaid internship etc etc yeah like then and that so it's more down to the class sort of 
problem. Yeah, and I think disability is exactly the same. I think that there is just because because journalism is so intensely competitive, and so many people want to do it compared to the number of jobs there are. I think if you have, you know, if you are blind or deaf or you use a wheelchair, trying to make that case. You know, the Guardian do a positive action scheme on disability, but I don't think anyone else does. Mm-hmm. And and that that is really tough. You are really uh, at a disadvantage then. Yeah, and when you start to have an industry that's kind of strapped for resources and needing to get the best story every time with the least amount of investment, it's not a surprise that those things fall by the wayside. I mean, that's one of the big dangers of the kind of pressures facing it now. Yeah. Well, that was depressing. But, um, but, <laughs> but, better. but on a happy note, I am shortlisted for an award. Well, on that note, thank you very much, Barbara, for joining us. And uh, welcome to You Ask Us. Uh, this week we've been asked to pick not necessarily some MPs to watch who we think will lead their parties, but just ones who are interesting, who we think, you know, perhaps are ones you've heard of, perhaps not, who are kind of, let's say, I don't know, three MPs. They can be one from each party or they can be from the same party or... Three MPs. Do you know what? I was um, surprisingly impressed by Gavin Barwell. There's somebody who probably listeners might not have heard of. He was PPS to Michael Gove Education. He came on to do this discussion. Uh, and and I was just struck by how he had thought about what the discussion was. It was about and, and actually how he could get Tory messages across. Now, you know, that's that's a, sort of seems like a, a really budget thing to applaud someone for. But, you know, fundamentally, that is your job as a politician is to think about the opportunity you have and the opportunity to deliver your messages in that slot. And uh, yeah, and then he was he he was he was really interesting on Gove about you know he said he, you know he conceded the fact that Gove had tried to do too much education, but said you know that's because he's aware you know his time's really short. And I thought, well, this is somebody who's acknowledged the criticisms. He's not trying to give me a kind of total pravda, mm. but has kind of thought about how he, you know how this had to present this in 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 a way that you know will appeal to Tory voters. So I was impressed with him. I have a soft spot for Jess Phillips because she is. Uh, just undaunted uh, in in the way that she says things, and I think I I think she adds to the gaiety of the nation in the sense that her quotes are always eye catching. You know, you just you read it, you know, it just sounds like your mate in the pub who is you know who's got an opinion on everything, and I find that I find that really attractive. Who else is my third one? You're looking at me like I'm going to go. And my third one is Stephen Bush MP, who I think is a little known. Um, no, you go on. You, you can pick. You, you, you pick a couple. And I'll so think I'm my third with, one. Um, Johnny Mercer. Mm, oh yeah, I uh, the uh, the n- relatively newly elected Tory MP in Plymouth, mm-hmm. who's thoughtful and interesting, has done some sort of interesting ob- uh, interventions. On... Yeah, he's a former soldier. He, yeah. I did a panel with him and Paddy Ashton and Charlie Faulkner, and again, he's somebody who he was. He stood up and made a, a speech against tax credit. So he's he's already marked himself out as being kind of independent minded. But yeah, okay, good, good choice. Um, and this may not be so much one to watch because obviously there's very far you, little you can go in the Lord. But my uh, my other interesting person is I think um, Charlie Faulkner, who's having this quite surprising second political life. Um, he seems to be quite enjoying him. Every time I yeah. see him, he looks like he's really chipper. Yeah, then you would not have you would not because he is literally the last Blairite left in the shadow yeah. cabinet. You wouldn't have picked Charlie Faulkner as the final survivor of the New Labour era, and you also would have expected him to be a continually awkward, not very effective presence. But he's actually managing to somehow balance. He hasn't shredded anything he believes in publicly. He's not. Yeah, you know, he has he has managed to get to a position where he is 
a relatively thriving and stable member of Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet, which I think is an impressing, impressive feat of political resilience. I might pick Sarah Williston then, and I know that's a kind of classic again. If we're, I guess we're going down very much on the path of independent-minded backbenchers. But chairman of the House Select Committee, she's been very interesting on the sugar tax. I don't agree with her on the doctors, but she's been very interesting on that too. And she is somebody who I think you know has a good grasp of the issues on which she speaks and is always interesting. And actually, my final one, I'm going to go with Heidi Alexander, who I know I've tipped for other things before on this podcast, but you know, really Jeremy Corbyn's uh, star signing, uh, not of his politics, but someone who had, you know, we complain about Jeremy Corbyn uh, treating women as an afterthought, which he does, but he is a light years ahead of Ed Miliband, who had plenty of decent women who were inexplicably left in the second tier, of whom Heidi Alexander is one. She's been a phenomenal uh, shadow health secretary, uh, she's really got Jeremy Hunt on the run and the number of urgent questions, common interventions. You know, next time you're off sick uh, and you're watching, you should watch the Parliament Channel, watch watch, watch Heidi Alexander in full flow. She's a really impressive operator. I might give a small shout out actually to Chris Bryant as well, who is again having a second kind of act of his career. He's kind of leader of the kind of just make it work faction. Again, he doesn't share Jeremy Corbyn's politics, but he is, he, he get, you know, he's in there, he's getting stuck in. Actually, very much like um, John Ashworth is as well, you know, really actually just stick, sticking it to the Tories quite effectively. And, yeah, and, and and Chris Bryant versus Chris Grayling, I would say it's one of the best clashes, but that would imply a level of even-handedness. And it's just... It's like the system, Stop, he's already it, dead. It, yeah, if, if you wanted to show a new MP, here's how to perform in the Commons, regardless of, of you know, their, their own politics, you go, well, look, watch Chris Grayling, who, you know, timing is perfect, lines are perfect, mastery of the house perfect. The worst thing is actually when Chris Grayling's speechwriters have written him a good line and he's still... The delivery is so bad. and Whereas, yeah, I think my favourite was when Chris Bryant talking about the trade union bill said, well, under the rules for ballot thresholds, most of the MPs here wouldn't be here, including uh, the honourable gentleman. And you're just like, oh, I can see the punch coming. Grayling can see the punch coming, but there's nowhere for him to go. Well, there we go. We've been nice about people for a change. Isn't that lovely? You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Stephen Bush. Our producer is India Bork and our music is Devil with a Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.